собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли, люди маска. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you would like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Conspiratorial thinking at the Russian state level is well known, especially in the last few years. But expressions of paranoia are littered throughout contemporary Russian culture, popular fiction, movies, television shows, internet discussions, blogs, and religious tracts. How do we make sense of these narratives of paranoid fantasies? And what do they say about Russian identity and worldview when it is embodied in popular culture? Here's Elliot Bornstein with some insight. Elliot Bornstein is a professor of Russian and Slavic studies and collegiate professor at New York University. He's the author of several books, including Men Without Women, Masculinity and Revolution in Russian Fiction, 1917 to 1929, and Overkill, Sex and Violence in Contemporary Russian Popular Culture. His most recent book is Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Elliot Bornstein. So um, let's let's start our, our conversation by just having you introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Elliot Borenstein, a professor of Russian and Slavic studies at New York University. And what do you do? You have a very eclectic, um, you know, interests from uh, popular culture and all. Oh, sure. Yeah. So why don't you why don't you tell us a bit about your your very eclectic interests? Yeah, I, I, when I teach my graphic novel class, which is, has no Russian content, I like to tell my students that I'm actually, I spent more of my life preparing to teach that class than I have prepared to teach anything Russian. Um, so I've long been long been fascinated with popular culture as a consumer of it and, of, um, on, and never really expected to be able to um, fit it together with my academic life very well, um, partly because when I started studying Russian in the 1980s, um, Russian popular culture just was not particularly attractive. Um, it didn't have that much to offer in terms of pleasures that I could recognize as pleasures. Um, there was ideological content, but there was nothing like, you know, beach reading or airport reading. Um, and I was a uh, closet comic reader in graduate school. I didn't tell people where I was going every Wednesday to buy my, to buy my daily fix, my weekly fix. Um, but when I started, uh, when I lived in Russia while uh, running the Fulbright program and working my dissertation, um, that's that was the early '90s, and just the um, sheer weirdness of the um, world around me really spoke to me. Um, and I started gathering materials and doing articles, and then eventually it became uh, my second book, Overkill. And um, I really haven't looked back. I started out working on modernism, and I love modernism, but um, mass culture has really been uh, my home. 
So um, I did the next book on um, conspiracy theory, which we're talking about today. And then I wrote a short book on Pussy Riot, which is coming out in November. And I've just kept going with this. I've um, found in the past few years that I've just been able to, thanks to starting up the uh, the blog at the Jordan Center in 2012, the All the Russia's blog, that really gave me a whole new sense of um, how to organize my writing and how just to keep working. And so I have this uh, three-book series I'm doing about... Um, um, about Russian identity after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. And I'm also writing a book that I'm serializing on a blog and on the Manifold platform for Cornell on Marvel Comics in the 1970s. And I've just put in a book proposal for a, um, a book on the HBO uh, drama The Leftovers. And I'm, um, this summer I'm writing a book on Russian memes and internet, um, Russian, Russian internet memes and viral video. Um, about which I'm giving weekly lectures um, on Zoom for the Jordan Center. So how, how do you stay so prolific? I mean, this is it's quite amazing, all of these juggling, all of these projects that you have. And, uh, you know, in, in many respects, like like you did this book, Plots Against Russia, but also your new book on Marvel Comics, you're actually writing it on you're blogging it first. Um, and, and I and the other thing I have to say, too, and maybe this speaks to that level of juggling is the way you way you write. Um, it's almost like, and I don't know how people will, or you will take this or people will take it, but it is in many respects kind of, it's like reading Zizek, where you're making all of these <laughs> pop culture references. Um, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I should start sniffing. <laughs> you, you probably should start. I mean, you know, the level of productivity and the and the writing style, maybe there's, <laughs> maybe there's something to it. Oh my God. <laughs> I need to start, I need to really work on the self plagiarism too. I'm really yes, uh, yeah, might as well. I, I've had my moments, but <laughs> well, I've always I've always um, liked multitasking, and I've always felt that um, projects take on as much space as you give them. So I wrote my dissertation in the morning before going to my day job, and that really helps. But I think what's really helped me in um, lately is the blog giving me a different format making me understand that I could um, continue what I'd always done, which is say, okay, I have a goal for a number of words I want to do a day. Doing multiple things is much more interesting to me than sitting and doing one big thing. And I think what's really crucial for me um, is that now that I'm in my 50s and I'm a full professor, nothing I do matters at all in terms of uh, my career, rewards, anything. It, um, I could, it just doesn't matter for anyone in any way except for me. Um, and so that's completely liberating. There's no... There's there's nothing for me to be seeking, um, and with and with that, I find I'm much more productive than having um, the anxiety of um, my next promotion or keeping my job. Or somehow, um, this is this is much easier for me. So my my total irrelevance and total lack of incentive has been a real incentive. <laughs> wow, that's that's quite the opposite of of many people who get to the, your your level in your profession. Most people kind of sit back on their laurels and you know and kind of retire in many respects. Well, let's um, let's talk about your new book, which is titled Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism. And right from the very beginning, the very first words, I, I was struck by the first line, which is, this is an uncomfortable book to write. It is also the book that I've been preparing to write for my entire adult life. So uh, what do you mean by this? Because you, you go into some detail, you kind of muse on this uncomfortableness. Well, yeah, um, it's something I wrestle with because I've always been fascinated with 
conspiracy theory, certainly, but also with the bizarre and the unusual. So I know that my own tendency is to seek out um, the strange, um, the strange phenomena, and then do something with them and um, say something about them. But I'm always worried that um, I'm giving too much emphasis on something that's actually marginal. And that's even worse when I'm talking about someone else's culture and and some other country. I don't want to be um, playing, I don't want to be playing a role in creating this image of those crazy Russians, you know. Um, I don't want to be orientalizing or exoticizing. Um, And I think because I'm an outsider, I don't have the same sort of standing I would as an insider, just as I feel in American culture, for instance, to um, have a certain jaundiced critical eye that that, um, I can justify by the fact that I'm thoroughly implicated. I'm implicated when I talk about Russia, but implicated in a very different way. I'm implicated as someone coming from the traditional um, geopolitical adversary. Um, And I don't, so I don't want to be playing into all of that. But by the same token, a lot of that stuff is there. And what what changed for me with with the conspiracy stuff is that over the, the, the life cycle of studying it, the materials that I was looking at really did go from margin to center. Um, if in the late 90s I was reading obscure, crappy newspapers and um, eventually stuff online and um, couldn't really say how important it was, those same people that I was reading are now on state television. Um, and the sort of things they're saying are being said by lots of people on state television. Um, so I feel like um, they're the ones who have made it, um, who have inflated its importance, not me. So now I feel more authorized. But at the same time, I mean, you, you are writing this book in a context where really since 2014, a lot of that, you know, otherness and, and Orientalism of Russia that's presented in Western media and stuff actually rose to the top as well. So how, how were you also conscious of that? In addition, I mean that the the immediate context of writing a book like this, uh, as a you know, yeah, no, I absolutely was conscious of it. I mean, there were two particular ideas that I thought of as both overblown and to some extent played out when I started writing the book, and I kept having to revise what I said about them. In, in some cases, not enough, I think, as um, the ground beneath me changed. One was political correctness, which I felt like in the West was just done as an idea. And then Trump brought it back, um, though Trump has made it even more primitive because that's what he does. Um, and the other is Russophobia, which I still largely believe is a an internal Russian phenomenon um, projected onto um, an exterior gaze that is um, imagining that um, the whole world is against you. And yet, as I make those claims, the uh, Western, particular American media starts to look more Russophobic. Um, I don't think I'm wrong in terms of where Russophobia really plays its most important role, um, but uh, there is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy going on, at least in part, when it comes to the Russophobia of the Western media. Yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll go into detail more later on Russophobia, since this is one of our, our shared interests. Um, now, the title of your book is, is and, I, and it, as I was reading it, I only this only clicked with me at a certain point. Um, the title of your book, Plots Against Russia. Now, plots, the word plots, has a double meaning. And, and I'm sure you were very conscious when you chose that title. Uh, and that meaning is, a, you know, a conspiracy, an actual plot to against someone, but plot also as narrative. So talk about the double meaning of this term and how it functions in your book. Yeah, I was very conscious of the double meaning and also the fact that it's a double meaning in English, but doesn't translate into Russian. Um, but I, I talk about that, too, at, at one point. Um, what I'm really getting at here is, um, well, there's an argument I'm making, there's several arguments I'm making about conspiracy theory and, and paranoia in general. 
um, some of which are familiar and some of which I hope are, are a bit more original. Um, the familiar thing for scholars of, of conspiracy in the West, I think, is this um, notion that uh, that the tendency to, cons- to see conspiracies is connected to a kind of um, pattern recognition, pattern recognition uh, mechanism in our minds, which is very much like the way we put together stories and we tell stories. When I'm, when I'm teaching narrative to my students, I point out that we have strange expectations of our fictional narratives. We expect them to hold together really well. And when they don't hold together well, um, there's something wrong with it. But if our own lives held together that, that well, it would be like we're living in the Truman Show or something. Um, the example I give is, you know, you have a story like a John Updike type story when it's set in, say, suburban New Jersey, where um, a husband and wife are, um, are having conflicts and they have, a, they have a fight. The husband goes off to work um, uh, to, by a commuter train and then a plane hits his building and he's dead. Um, that's reality, but that's a terrible, uh, that's terrible plot um, because what happens to the guy at that point has nothing to do with what's been happening beforehand. Um, and so when strange things like planes hitting airplanes, which of course were part of an actual plot and conspiracy, when those things happen, um, we really want to find, we really want to find a way to connect everything so it does make sense. Um, and we want, so we want um, the world around us to have a plot. And so there is a kind of, um, there's a kind of uh, comfort to conspiracy um, that I think is appealing to, to some people, right? Um, you, have a tr- you have a binary choice between um, the world is going to hell just because it is and things are chaotic, or the world is going to hell because there are certain evil people who are um, masterminding it. And in a way, that latter is more comforting because there are people you can fight. Um, but if it's just the chaos of the world, then you're kind of screwed. Yeah, this is the way I I I, I understand the cons- conspiracy thinking too as as actually a form of psychological comfort because it is a way to order chaos. It is a way to to kind of arrest, you know, a world that's constantly changing, that's incredibly complicated, uh, where you know meaning and truth is difficult to to grasp, and drawing a narrative. You know, narrativizing or make applying a logic to a fantasy brings a certain psychological comfort. And for me, this is one of the reasons why I think conspiracy thinking has really risen to the surface in so many places. Now, analysis of, of conspiracy thinking ha- have really come into vogue uh, of late for understanding Russia. Um, why, why do you think that is so? And, and how do you place your work into this general body of, of thinking about the function of conspir- conspiratorial thinking in Russia? Well, once again, if I want to be binary about it, there's a good side and a bad side to it, right? I think the, the um, less productive impulses for thinking about Russia in a conspiratorial framework have to do with the really lazy habits of, um, again, of Western media of assuming, you know, there's one guy in the Kremlin and it's Putin and he is um, he is deciding everything and everything is part of his master plot and he really controls things um, from top to bottom. And there is actually no um, no disorder really because we have this um, genius actually, uh, this evil genius in the Kremlin. And um, there's so many obvious flaws in all of that. Um, and I think that that is detrimental to to international relations, a detrimental to sort of basic understanding of of um, humans around the world. So there is that um, that I think is is a negative. 
But on the flip side, there are reasons to look to examine contemporary Russia in terms of conspiracy, not not in the sense of looking for actual conspiracies, um, but of um, recognizing the important role of um, a kind of reflexive conspiratorial thought that you see in the media and in um, and in the words of state actors. Um, one of the things I keep coming back to is this sense that you get, that I get when um, I am watching state media, sometimes when I'm listening to, when I'm reading um, things online and listening to uh, various uh, government officials speak, um, is that it seems as though there is a shortage, a deliberate shortage of agency um, in Russian discourse. That is, um, there's a presumption that only state actors have agency, only certain institutions have agency, and um, anyone else, um, anyone else who looks like they have agency is actually being puppeteered by someone else. So the question that comes up reflexively about any sort of protest is, oh, it's being paid for, who's behind them, who's paying for it? Um, if someone is doing some kind of charitable activity, oh, why are they really doing that? Unless they're part of the state, unless they're part of the church. Um, in fact, we had that weird phenomenon when people were volunteering to put out fires a few years ago and the state was interfering with it. Um, so um, there is, so there could be specific um, conscious political reasons to do this, but I think it. I think it actually um, also is in part a result from the way that the um, the state and the media have been set up for decades. Um, with this, not that everything is top down, but with an assumption that things work in a top down fashion. There's a moment I remember in Michael McFall's memoir that really um, resonated with me when he talks about I think being a grad student, maybe doing research and being. Um, being brought into the FSB and questioned, and basically they're, at, they're saying to him something like, well, you came here to study something about political, um, I don't remember what his work was on, but um, something about political opposition. Who told you to do this? What, who told you to study Russia? And he said, I did it on my own. And no one, they, they honestly seem not to believe that someone could just on their own decide this is what they want to do. How do you explain this? I mean, you know, you're, you're right, the, the structural organization of you know, state and information flows in, in Russia for the last, you know, half century or and more contributes to this. But there there's something, and, and I think this goes to something you're getting at, that the conspiratorial thinking in Russia that, you know, in your book, it's you're speaking about it as it's reflected in popular culture, you know, not necessarily coming from the state. Um, it it's self-reflexive, right? It says something about the state of identity and one's, uh, or even on a societal, cultural level, one's um, place in the world. So, so how does the what does conspiratorial thinking say to you about the Russian understanding of of identity and their and and the self? Well, I think. It actually says more about understanding of other people's selves than one's own self. I think it's related to um, a really profound um, cynicism that has dominated political discourse, um, and I think has roots that go far back before Putin, but that the Putin era really encouraged, which is to um, really assume that um, no one's no one's motivations are really good, no one's motivations are pure. Um, everybody's out to get something. And there are so many reasons why that's not an unreasonable assumption to have in a lot of cases. Um, but um, this it, this assumption of, there's a reason to assume corruption a lot because there is a lot of corruption, but the assumption of corruption on, on just about every level 
is um, really detrimental to actually opening up a space for imagining that you could just sort of do something because you think it's the right thing to do. Um, I think altruism um, and idealism are really, really suspect. Um, whereas um, corruption and um, conspiracism, those make sense. Um, because if you assume that you're surrounded by people with malign intent, um, it's easier to believe that. Do you think that this is, and I just thought of this, and I don't know, I don't know if you can make anything from this, but, you know, a lot of this, this idea that people are, you know, you should be skeptical of anyone's uh, genuine intentions. In a way, this is a, a a rejection, or at least the opposite of what Soviet ideology suggested about people, which is promotion of volunteerism, promotion of collective, you know, mutual aid, and this, do you, do you feel that this this comes out of a not only a feeling that Soviet ideology was hollow, uh, and, and but also a, a a kind of ethical rejection of it? I think it's less of an ethical rejection than more of a of a of a question of that hollowness that you mentioned. Um, if you know, if you if your own experiences of is of going through the motions of going to the subotnik and and um, doing all the voluntary work because you're made to. And if you know that the compsonal organizer isn't really dedicated, but it's just sort of doing it because this is the, the this is the way you get on in the world, the sort of the, you know, the stuff that um, Alexei Yurchak talks about um, in, in his book, um, that um, if you know all of that, then um, all, then that all um, ma- makes it make much more sense to assume that people are just doing things because it's easy to do them or because it's beneficial to them and not um, because there's some real, um, real ideological impulse. I mean, the it's it's the ideologues you have to watch out for, right? Because they're kind of crazy. Um, everybody else, you know, <laughs> right? Everybody else, they, they make much more sense. Um, so yeah, I think the Soviet experience is is, is a big part of it. This um, general um, um, direct experience of of the bullshit of um, ideology as it's expressed in everyday life. Now, what are some of the the frameworks that make up uh, conspiracy theories in Russia? The main one you speak about is, I mean, it's it's embedded in your title is that plots against Russia, this entity. So, what are some of the main uh, kind of themes you find? Well, this is where this is where I think my work overlaps most with Ilya Yablokov's Fortress Russia, which the phrase itself I think um, um, says a lot. And he didn't invent it, but he's um, he was absolutely right to put it forward as the title of his book. Um, this notion that Russia is surrounded by enemies on all, on all sides um, is, I think, one of the biggest parts of the framework. And it does a couple of things. It um, can um, appeal to a sense of solidarity because, you know, you're under attack. But also, um, again and again, what I see is all of these things reinforce how important Russia is on the world stage. I mean, it's not plots against Liechtenstein, you know, no offense to Liechtenstein, right? But um, you have to I think you have to be really important for people to be out to get you. And so um, in so many of these various conspiratorial um, narratives, um, there are ways in which Russia has to be defeated, has to be colonized, has to be appropriated because it is so important. And so um, ultimately, these conspiracies are really, really flattering. And they're flattering at a time when, for instance, um, you know, it seems like uh, 100 years ago, but say in the um, 2012 American election campaign between um, Obama and Romney, and Romney calls um, Russia the greatest geopolitical threat America faces, and um, and Obama says that the, what is it the, the 1970s they're calling they want their foreign policy back, um, 
or McCain referring to Russia as basically a gas station with tanks. Um, those, those sort of things were, there were reasons to say them, but in terms of um, diplomacy, they were really, really bad moves because um, I think the best approach to take with the Russian Federation and leadership throughout all of those years would be to acknowledge importance, to acknowledge greatness, um, to, to, to sort of parrot back the litany that you hear all the time. Yes, you saved Europe from fascism. You had all these great composers, all these great writers. Go, Russia. You're wonderful. But now, could you please help us with this? Or you might want to think of that. Um, but to start with, with, to affirm Russia's greatness from the outside without having so that the only, so that um, you don't have conspiracy as the only external possible affirmation of Russia's importance. That really, a lot more attention should have been paid to flattering um, to flattering Russia because there's plenty to flatter Russia about. It wouldn't be hard. Um, but instead, but instead, for thirty some years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, we've just been we're just kicking it when it's down. There seems to be, and and here is a a, a question that's actually related to this U.S. Russia dyad uh, that. There seems to be a, a mutual narcissism that's going on between the two. And, and this goes into the, my, a question about Russophobia, because I, I see it playing out. I mean, you speak about it in terms of Russophobia being a narcissism of the Russians, uh, which I completely agree with. And then also, I think a lot of American Russophobia is also about a narcissism of America. Um, so wh what role does Russ, what is Russophobia and what role does it play in in the conspiratorial thinking? Well, before I get to Russophobia and the conspiratorial thinking, when, when you mentioned the narcissistic diet, I think the real problem is that the narcissistic diet exists, but America's narcissism is so great that it doesn't need Russia to be narcissistic. Um, America doesn't need America doesn't need anything outside of America to be narcissistic. We are just we're, we're totally fine. We don't need to know geography. We don't need to know anything. Whereas Russia um, has historically um and i hate using russia as this as the subject of my sentence because it's so reductive but um historically looked outwards for external affirmation um and america hasn't because america couldn't couldn't care less about what the rest of the world thinks of it because we we know we're great um so but there is a, but there is a but you even let me interrupt you for a second because there is a notion that you even mentioned and that is anti-americanism that's somewhat of an obsession right every time like some you know iranian burns a flag there's a complete hair tearing <laughs> that's true that's true um but i think that's a that's a good point i'm trying to figure out how to formulate this i think that the anti-americanism Anti-Americanism still doesn't play the same role um, in American discourse as Russophobia does in Russian discourse, right? I mean, they're both they're both used to dismiss opposition, absolutely, especially internally. Like, if you call someone in America anti-American, you're shutting off conversation. And, and if you go back to the 1960s in particular, you see how that um, played itself out really, really well. Um, but um, I think... Off the top of my head, I would say that when we when um, we talk about anti-Americanism in other countries, um, it's showing how wrong they are. Um, whereas when you talk about Russophobia from other countries in Russia, it's showing how much they want to destroy us. Now with Iran, of course, okay, yeah, death to America, fine. Um, but but um, but otherwise, um, otherwise, it's more um, it's really more about um, how 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 wrong the people who criticize us are. Right, right, right. It's in a way it almost anti-Americanism, and if I can formulate this right, anti-Americanism reaffirms America's righteousness, whereas Russophobia 
uh, shows how under threat Russia is. Yeah, I think so. Anti-Americanism might affirm America's righteousness, and Russophobia affirms uh, Russia's importance. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because um, America doesn't need anyone to affirm their importance, um, though they're doing a though our, our government is doing a really good job to make America less important. <laughs> um, but so so talk about Russophobia and 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 what it means. So Russophobia goes back to the night. Um, at least as far as I've traced it back to the 19th century, um, Tuchif uh, wrote about it, the poet Tuchif. Um, it's, a, it's a word that's come up um, off and on over the past couple of centuries, but it really doesn't take off until um, the uh, dissident mathematician, anti-Semitic lunatic um, uh, Shafarevich writes his book, Russophobia, in, um, in the 1980s. And, and that reintroduces that into... Um, Russian discourse. One of the reasons Russophobia wasn't a particularly useful concept until the 1980s is that, in ter- you know, unlike the way in which the outside world, particularly in America, could not wrap its head around the distinction between Russia and the Soviet Union, um, as um, that there's a reason to make a distinction between Russia and the Soviet Union. Internally, in the Soviet Union, everybody did, right? I mean, there's you did not say Russia when you meant the Soviet Union, or the Soviet Union when you meant Russia. They were they they were lexically distinct and had their own particular meanings. So um, in Soviet times, what was being discussed was anti-Soviet propaganda, anti-Soviet elements, um, which mirrors anti-Americanism much better. To talk about Russophobia in Soviet times would have been a particular ethnic terms that would not necessarily be welcome um, by the state because there's the state did, the state was playing a very um, tricky game when it came to, um, to ethnicity, even as it did promote the greatness of Russian culture in Russia as, you know, the the big brother to all the little brothers, um, it was very careful with the whole playing the nationalism card. So Russophobia wouldn't be the the, the big problem was anti-Sovietness. But as um, as uh, the Soviet Union, you know, uh, stops being a going concern, Russophobia then is available um, as a concept to um, explain um, hostility towards Russia. And then also now that we don't, now that Russia is the successor state to the Soviet Union, it can... Um, it can uh, overcome the slippage between the Soviet Union and Russia because the Soviet Union then becomes just the, the previous instantiation of um, Russian statehood. And so what is the, how do you explain then this obsession with Russophobia? I mean, this is the, the go-to, you know, uh, uh, card that the Russian government plays. Uh, it just played it the other day when the announcement of Pulitzer Prizes. And, you know, one could dismiss it as just, you know, just part of their toolkit of dismissal. But, you know, it, it also has a deep, deeper meaning. Right. And, and I'm not sure they were entirely wrong when it came to feel surprised this time either. Um, I was really, really taken aback by that one. Um, so, um, well, it's been, it's useful in, um, for one thing, I think it is kind of face-saving, right? If you go back to the 1990s, when um, in the West, Russia was, Russia was in the news in the West when Russia was a basket case. You know, Russia in crisis, Russia's falling apart, terror, terrorism, um, economic collapse. It's always bad news about Russia. Um, and that could be because there's a lot of bad news about Russia. That could also be because news, uh, the, the news cycle focuses on the negative. Um, but then when you throw in um, uh, images in popular culture that seem to be making fun of Russians, um, like the guy wearing his ushanka, his fur hat in Armageddon as the near space, space station while he's drinking vodka, um, these are stereotypes you could also see in Russian movies very easily, but it's um, a different thing when 
um, when it's outside of Russia. So to some extent, I think there, there, was, there really was an uptick in some um, negative portrayals of Russians um, in mass media or in mass culture in the 1990s outside of Russia, in part because they're a pretty good villain or stock figure to make fun of because they don't fit into the whole, um, uh, the whole racial framework um, in the United States. If you're making fun of the Chinese, you, then you're, you're not making fun of people from China. You're making, you're, you're making, you're, you're engaging in racism. Um, but because Russians are read as white, um, then they're available and it's not seen as racism. Um, but in, in, in American culture, it's kind of fascinating. I don't know if you've ever seen, there was a, I can't remember the comedian, um, but there's a YouTube video where this comedian has this whole um, sketch about his whole routine about how Russians are the scariest white people. Um, and just putting it that way, way says, says a great deal. Um, so then you have, then you have um, uh, Amer- the NATO expansion and um, not taking Russian um, interests into account in Yugoslavia. I mean, the bombing of Serbia is a huge um, turning point. Um, all of this can then be seen as hostility to Russia. And then, then in particular, I think it's politically useful to see any, um, any uh, NATO activity against former Russian allies as a warm-up um, for what's going to happen to Russia. You know, one of the things you point to, and this goes, I think, to a lot of the, the particularities of the conspiratorial thinking in, in, in Russia today, and it, this is its apocalyptic le- uh, nature in the sense that Russia is teetering. It's almost like the country you know, sees itself as teetering on the precipice and just needs a little push to fall off the edge. Um, and so how does, you know, th- and this goes to my next question about liberalism, because the, the, the rhetoric about liberalism in Russia over the last, you know, half decade or more um, ha- is really, I mean, it's really over the top. So how does liberalism fit into this? Well, the rhetoric about liberalism in Russia is, is turns out to be common to um, all sorts of uh, political movements in Eastern and in Western Europe. And in fact, in a sense, what you see with the rhetoric of liberalism in Russia over the past 10 years is kind of a preview of um, some of the more, what is getting to be more uh, mainstream anti-liberalism and even in America, right, with the, with the Trumpists and so on and so forth. Um, liberalism in Russia is a complicated term because, it's complicated in English too, but it's particularly complicated because liberalism um, is introduced to mean both um, economic liberalism of the Thatcherite kind um, and also um, the sort of uh, political liberalism that we see that gets caricatured um, as political correctness and also um, legal proceduralism, um, which is supposed to ensure equality of access but um, can be caricatured as um, just uh a, a kind of bloodless formalism that doesn't care if people are guilty or not, just as long as the rules are being um, are being followed. So all of these things all mean liberalism. And then, of course, the the government in the nineteen nineties, which is um, characterized as liberal and democratic, is seen to be failing and corrupt, and so on and so forth. So liberalism gets a really bad name. Um, but what? But liberalism's Achilles' heel um, is that on the one hand, it's supposed to be. Um, it's supposed to be proclaiming universal values like human rights and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, it's stemming from a particular part of the world. And if liberalism is really so concerned for my minoritarian points of views, for the um, for the um, the uh, point of view of people who aren't necessarily part of the the mainstream, then why aren't they concerned about the point of view of say uh, Russian nationalists who feel like the um, 
Russian culture needs to be preserved and kept separate. That is, um, so so liberalism really fails when it's confronted not by the appeals of um, ethnic minority groups, uh, religious uh, or um, linguistic or um, gender minority groups within um, a liberal state, but it fails, I think it fails in argument against a state that sees itself as a, um, a minority that is not being recognized by liberalism. So what, what is the plot of liberalism? Well, the plot of liberalism the past several years um, in, in Russian discourse is um, to completely destroy uh, Russian traditional values, right? To destroy the family, make everybody gay, to get rid of gender, to, um, to have schools where people are taught that there's no such things as boys and girls, to, take, to um, seize children from their parents at the, um, at the drop of the hat, and to, enfor- to force Russia to accept these alien values which then strategically helps Russia to, to align itself with um, other countries and see itself as the champion of, um, of traditionalism um, when the West is throwing traditionalism out. Right. It, 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 this, the, 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 the field of battle gets put in civilizational terms, right? Now Russia is def- a defender of, you know, uh, Christian civilization, traditional values, all of these things that you just said. Um, yeah, it's like everybody mainline Samuel Huntington. It's really, it's, it's not pleasant. Yeah, it's, it, it definitely is. Now, the, the one other thing that other plot that, that you note is this idea of zombification. And, and this one I found really interesting because it, you, here you actually have some intersection between uh, the Putinists and the intellectual opposition in Russia who have their, see the population as essentially zombies. Um, so what is this zombification? And, and if you can talk about this strange intersection. Sure. Well, in the book, I give a kind of archaeology going back to Western ideas of brainwashing and the anti-cult movement. We don't really need to go into that here. I think what is more um, relevant is the stuff that we are talking about a few minutes ago, which is this kind of um, denial of agency or agency panic. Um, so there's a funny thing that's going on, I think, when it comes to media and media consumption. I think I talked about this in the book. The, the thing that I still have not completely wrapped my head around is that when I would go to the Soviet Union in the 80s and to Russia in the 90s, um, I felt like whoever I was talking with, that on the whole, they were much savvier media consumers than, than people I talked to in, in, um, in America. They knew they were being lied to by television. And so they didn't trust what they were hearing and they were reading between the lines. And, and this fits in with a sort of conspiratorial attitude too that I've talked about. But now you have the situation where, according to polls, if you believe polls, that's a whole other thing, but um, there does seem to be consistency there, that people do believe what state television is telling them, which I would not have expected. Um, but there's a big difference in that um, in Soviet times, the state television was telling you things that you could see were untrue just by walking out into the street. Like, you know, the shops were not full of wonderful goods and all of that. But um, the lies of Russian state television are almost, fo- it feels like they're focus group tested, right? You know, they're, they're lying about things that people would already be willing to, um, to believe in to some extent. And they're also lying about things that are not part of direct experience. You know, what's going on in Sweden or what's going on in America? They don't immediately have proof text test against. So you have this notion that the, the, the viewer who is watching Channel One, the main, the main TV station, but really any of these um, uh, main um, central television channels, is just um, sitting in front of the TV and 
everything that's coming across the TV is just sort of going directly into their brain and they believe it. Now, there's lots of problems with this, this idea. It goes back to really outdated um, media theories from the 1950s um, in the West. But for one thing, it, it, it turns Russian state television into this huge success, right? Um, that, that they really do have the secret to brainwashing. Um, and it caricatures people who actually agree with the regime as brainwash idiots. Now, this is something, you know, this is, this is very similar to the conversation that, that liberals in the West have about Fox television, right? You know, you, that, you know your, your parents and grandparents are watching Fox TV and it's like they've been zombified. So there, there is something about the informational ecosystem in which you find yourself. Um, but just th- there, there's a, there's a, um, a catch-22 here, which is that um, once you open yourself up to the idea that other people have been zombified, zombified basically means brainwashing. It's just a term that's used in Russian as opposed to brainwashing, different metaphor. That people have been zombified by state television. That means being zombified by television is possible. And therefore, it's a, it's a weapon in the rhetorical arsenal that can be turned against you. Um, anyone can be zombified. Just as, um, say, the opposition's discovery of you know, actual video evidence that um, ballots are being stuffed um, for the regime in the 2012 elections, they turn it around and say, no, 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 it's the opposition that's doing this. You know, it's a very, very easy thing to turn around. And so um, what you have then with the outbreak of the conflicts in Ukraine is you know, Russian state media saying that people in Ukraine are being zombified by Ukrainian television and people in Ukraine saying that people in, the Rus- in Russia are being zombified by Russian state television. So you have this kind of perfect symmetry where everybody is a passive receptacle to the media and has no capacity for judgment and therefore can be discounted as a, um, as a meaningful, meaning-making subject. You know, passivity, this notion of passivity or you know, is is really central to conspiratorial thinking because the whole idea is that, you know, A, everyone's kind of a piece in the larger puzzle of of the world, right? And and are easily manipulated and moved into perfect position to, you know, for the conspiracy to unfold. But then there's the other thing in that even though you have this conspiracy, it relies on a whole lot of people being able to somehow keep the secret and not take any active to undo the conspiracy. Uh, so how does this notion of, of the, pa- the passive Russian population uh, play out politically? Well, I mean, that's a, the, the, the passive Russian population is an old cliche, but, it's, but the passive population in general, I think, is something that, um, that we see as a, as a notion being dealt with throughout the world. And frankly, um, in the West, it's, it's liberals who are more prone to um, positive passive uh, media consumer than than um, than conservatives are, so the discounting of an audience's ability to um, make their own meanings from things um, is definitely problematic. Even as we see um, instances where you know people living in their own informational bubble lead to that leads to um, really pernicious effects. There's still choices being made, and in fact, I think. If you're able to talk to people, look to Fox, to some Fox viewers in the United States, to some people who um, believe Russian, say they believe in Russian television in Russia. If you had longer conversations and asked the more detailed questions, you'd find answers that say, "Oh yeah, I know that stuff is bullshit, but this stuff um, is kind of real," um, and that that there is picking and choosing going on um, within a larger framework. And so it is more nuanced. Um, now that nuance might not matter when you're talking in large numbers. Um, in terms of support, but it's a way in which polling is also um, a kind of self-reinforcing uh, model of reality, right? Because I don't know about you, whenever I'm whenever I'm 
asked to answer questions in applied for like saying, no, no, I, I don't want either of those options. Can I give you option D or E? Um, but you're pushing me into this pattern. Like if someone were to ask me, do I trust government right now? You know, on the one hand, I want to say, well, I don't trust Trump, so I don't trust government. But I don't want to say I don't trust government because it makes me sound like a Trumpist. So I end up, so I have to, to game the question to come up with the right answer. And I think that's something that, that um, Russian poll respondents in particular have been very good at. Um, because if there's one thing that the past hundred years of Russian history teaches you is to be careful and circumspect in your um, answers to questions given by people who seem to be in some sort of authority. Now, you mentioned Ukraine, and, and the Ukrainian conflict seems to be this catharsis moment where all of the, the plots against Russia come together and in the, in the, in it reflects the super conspiracy. So, so how does you, what, why, you, why does Ukraine play this particular function? That's an excellent question. I mean, part of it, um, part of it is um, an obvious geopolitical thing, right? With NATO going up to its to um, its borders and possibly even, you know, um, eventually including Ukraine. So, in terms of a buffer zone between Russia and a perceived hostile Europe or hostile NATO or hostile hostile EU, just by virtue of sheer location, Ukraine becomes important. But there's also um, a real problem of self and other here that gets back to agency, right? Um, if you go. If you were to go back a few decades, this is totally anecdotal, I would say it'd be easier to find people who identify as Ukrainian who would have serious gripes to raise about Russia, right? Um, or about the Soviet Union and then Russia as its next, you know, um, next instantiation. Whereas from Russians, what you'd hear about Ukrainians would just be kind of um, dismissive, not take, the Ukraine was not taken seriously. This goes back to the whole notion of Ukraine not being a country, right? Um, that um, Putin is said to have said that some of my colleagues have said that suggests when people say Ukraine is not a country, I'm imagining like you're at an amusement park where you know you have to be this tall to go on a ride. Um, like there's some sort of there's some sort of benchmark there. You you have to meet this to be a real country rather than just a fake country. I and mean, then all that um, that fits into this this uh, this uh, national myth of, of Russian statehood and the importance of statehood. Right? Statehood means something. Statehood isn't just an accident. And so many. You know, Ukraine is not unique in this. So many of the countries on our, on our map um, of the past hundred years, we can see how easily their constructs based on, you know, war, post-colonialism, colonialism, all these things, they don't map onto, say, a particular notion of nation or language or, or belief. But on the other hand, why should they, right? So there's a sense that if it, uh, uh, a sense by some people that if, if a country doesn't meet these certain criteria, they're, they're just a kind of fake construct. Um, but there are lots of fake constructs like that, and then um, also the you know the the various uh, ethnic and pos and religious um, um, divisions in Ukraine, and just the sense that I think the most patronizing sense um, among uh, a lot of people in Russia that Ukraine, you know, what, what are you talking about? Ukraine is something else. Ukraine is us, and when you guys are saying you're, that you're not us here, that's 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 adorable, um, or that's silly. How can you say you're not us when you're us? Um, that's that's a hard argument to be in. Um, and so Ukrainian nationalism, to the extent that you take any nationalism seriously, I mean, if you want to, if you want to take a nationalism seriously, then why shouldn't you take Ukrainian nationalism seriously? Do you take any other nationalism seriously? But for um, a certain segment of, of um, Russian opinion makers, that's all just a kind of false consciousness on the part of Ukrainians who are really just, you know, little Russians. Um, so there is that. Um, and is the notion, is the idea that that false consciousness is planted because of, you know, Europe and liberalism? 
Absolutely. It's planted. It's, you know, it's been planted. It was, who hasn't planted it? You know, the Poles, the Lithuanians, the Catholics, EU, NATO, America. I mean, there's all sorts of people who could be Jews, of course. I mean, just, you know, just, I just throw them in, um, you know, this, um, everybody is, is presumably guilty of this um, because it couldn't be just that, you know, they're actual people with a grievance who on their own could feel like, no, you know, I don't, I'm not Russian or I don't want to be part of Russia. So there's all of that. Um, there's also a way in which when I see a lot of um, Russian media uh, discourse about Ukraine um, as a failed state and Ukraine's corruption, it, sometimes it kind of cracks me up because it feels like this projection of some of the of some things that you could say about Russia onto Ukraine, the corruption, like Russia. So yes, Ukraine's notorious for corruption. And Russia isn't right. Um, so you, so Ukraine becomes this kind of um, uh, Disneyland of corruption and um, and bad governance and so on and so forth. Um, as a, in distinction to um, to Russia, that is somehow you know managed well. And certainly, the Russian economy was better. Um, so. You have that. You have the ridiculous choice being forced on um, Ukraine. You know, you have to either be with Russia or the EU, which was such a huge mistake. And then years and years of um, of uh, all these fantasies being, you know, these fa fantastic novels being written about war in Ukraine. And Ukraine is the kind of Armageddon between um, uh, for a clash of civilizations. All being, you know, people weren't paying attention to it. I wasn't paying attention. But it was all there. There are all these scenarios just ready to be to to kick in. Um, and so. And and you know that's the stuff to talk about Crimea. Um, that that was a sore point from 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 1991 on again and again. And so you know why is Crimea part of Ukraine? So, well, you know <laughs> they needed an industrial base. It didn't mean anything at the time. Um, so um, there are all of these explanations for why Ukraine is not being taken seriously. Um, and then um, it, Ukraine was sort of a football between um, uh, political football between the West and and Russia. So you know why. Why not assume that it's all being manipulated by the State Department? And then, of course, the State Department, people in the State Department are saying incredibly stupid things, right? I mean, Victoria Nuland and all these people, that, that you know, it, it's, it's astonishing the things that they got caught saying on tape or Victoria Nuland just um, uh, handing out her cookies. I mean, this goes back to, you know, the whole question, say, Russian interference in American elections. Yes, there was Russian interference in American elections, but for decades, America has been very openly supporting opposition movements in Russia, and I, and I understand why, but that is also an interference, right? So... Um, so it's, it's hard to take a, take a complete high ground there. Yeah. It's kind of the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. You know, I mean, we, we helped get elected, Yeltsin reelected re in 1996 and, you know, I'm not sure that was a bad decision given the alternatives, but you know, we, <laughs> we were right there <laughs> manipulating that and, um, and cheer and cheering on the shelling of the parliament. All of this is going to, is going to come back to bite us. And finally, you know, you you repeatedly and rightfully say that you know conspiratorial thinking is not unique to Russia, uh, and you're very careful to not, uh, you know, make Russia an, a complete outlier. Though there's particularities that are really important. Um, and and but you know, as I suggested earlier, it seems like conspiratorial thinking in general has moved from the margins to the mainstream in many places around the world. In, in our political discourse here in the United States, it certainly feels that way. So how do you see your book helping us reflect on this general upsurge of conspiratorial thinking in our you know, global conversation or even our own national conversations? I, I hope it does. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure how, right? I mean, I think because a, a lot of the things I could say about um, the rise of conspiratorial thought um, in America and elsewhere 
would not be original to me and, and to my book, you know, in times of uncertainty, globalization, all of that, it, it certainly makes sense. I mean, I think what you get is interesting moments of contrast, right? I mean, I think in a sense, the conspiratorial situation in Russia is, you know, imagine that Fox News really were state television, right? That's where you um, you get stuff like that. What I like to think of as my, what I hope my big contribution is to, the, to understanding conspiracy is actually not really about Russia at all. Um, it's where I'm talking about the difference between completely buying into an entire conspiracy and being conspiratorial all the time. And the, the argument that I'm making that, in fact, in our everyday lives, we, we can assume a conspiratorial stance for a moment. We can be the subject of, of a conspiratorial um, utterance of a statement. Um, and uh, we can kind of believe in conspiracy in a conspiracy, but not entirely, and then put it aside. Um, that I think there's a hygienic impulse to... to to push conspiracy onto all of the Alex Joneses of the world. And, you know, that would be very nice. Um, but it's something that um, we all partake of in part because of a narrative, right? I mean, we want, um, we want that we, we consume narrative all the time where things have explanations and things make sense and, and there, and there is a villain. Um, and then also there's this, this real conspiratorial trap, right? Like um, I was saying that there's this reflexive thing that, you know, Trump says that people, um, pro-regime people in Russia say, oh, the protesters are paid for, the protesters are paid for. Well, then you have um, this phenomenon of these um, protesters going to, to state houses in Michigan and elsewhere um, with their armed protesters. And there's plenty of evidence that this is, you know, Koch, brother, Koch brothers funded things with people being brought from the outside to do all of this. And it's probably true, but it sounds exactly the same as what people in Russia are saying about um, anti-Putin demonstrators. So once you once you are aware of this, then the real problem is that there are things that have conspiratorial uh, elements to them, but then pointing them out also ends up feeling a bit compromised because you know you've spent all this time pointing out how compromised you know other conspiratorial thought is. So we're we're in a real trap when it comes to agency and when it comes to. Um, the fact that there are that there are people with money and power who actually are able to manipulate things. So how so we have a real problem, I think, of being able to talk about that in a way where we don't sound insane. That was Elliot Bornstein, professor of Russian and Slavic studies and collegiate professor at New York University. He's the author of several books, including Men Without Women, Masculinity and Revolution in Russian Fiction, 1917 to 1929, and Overkill. Sex and Violence in Contemporary Russian Popular Culture. His most recent book is Plots Against Russia, Conspiracy and Fantasy After Socialism, published by Cornell University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. I'm hard-ass tough guy, I've got a simple message.
Tell your friends I misunderstand you. Talk about my dungeon room. Keep telling all your friends. Never gonna make it true. You should have learned to live without it. Now you've built your life around it. Soon it's gonna fall on you. I don't care about it. Just don't tell me, cause I'm already on to someone new. Where, oh, where is the perfect order? Has anyone got a clue? The paranoid revolution. The paranoid revelation. Tired.